Today I'm continuing with our sermon series, which I began last week entitled The Great Adventure. And in this series, we are acknowledging the fact that our God is a God of love and laughter. He is the God of grace and peace, that he welcomes us and gives us comfort and a sense of belonging. So while we need to take our faith seriously and commit ourselves and our lives fully to Jesus, we need to never forget that we are to do this with joy and with positive enthusiasm. As I quoted C.S. Lewis last week, joy is the serious business of heaven. And we want to celebrate the joy and satisfaction that we find in Jesus. Today, I especially want us to recognize and celebrate that we Christians of all people know who we are. That we are the children of the living God. And we want to talk today about all that means. As we begin, I want us to look at our sermon passage for today, which is found in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with the 14th verse. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. You know, it's fascinating that human perceptions change significantly over time. There was a time in human history when no one would ever even thought to call themselves a son or daughter of God. After the Tower of Babel, people's relationship and understanding of God degenerated very rapidly. More and more people, sociologists and anthropologists, are now beginning to recognize what the Bible says is true, and that is that human beings began with monotheism, the belief in one God, and then they degraded into polytheism rather than the other way around, which it traditionally has been maintained. Instead of the one true God, men began to think in terms of many gods. Men made gods out of their fears. They saw a god in every storm and in every stroke of lightning. They deified their desires and made a god of gluttony and a god of lust. They deified their virtues and made a god of wisdom and a god of power. And they deified the benevolent forces of nature and they made a god of the harvest and a god of wheat and a god of wine. The list of pagan gods is very, very long. And in Romans, Paul gives us an understanding of how that came to be. In the first chapter of Romans, he writes this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has made himself present to us. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a, like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. 
We went from the revealed knowledge of the one true God to many gods that we put in many different forms. Snakes and birds and humans. The ancient pagans had no idea that a person could be a child of God unless that person was the product of lust. The product of a God who seized upon a beautiful mortal woman and left her with a child. This was the story, for instance, of the mighty Hercules. Hercules was half human and half God because the great god Zeus had become enamored of a human woman named Alcmene and had captured her and impregnated her. And she gave birth to Hercules, half human, half man. That's the only way that people could perceive of anyone being in any way a son or daughter of God. The idea of a person being a child of God in any positive sense did not occur until we come to the time of Jesus and the New Testament. There we find one of the most wonderful doctrines in all of our Christian revelation, the idea of sonship to God that was introduced by Jesus. That men and women can be sons and daughters of God. It was the plain teaching of Jesus that human beings had been children of sin and even children of the devil. But we could become children of God in far more than a spiritual sense through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In the first chapter of John, the Apostle John writes, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. But the great enemy of the truth, the devil, has always sought to obscure the special truth that is so humiliating to him that human beings can be children of God. So you see, the devil wants all people to be his children, part of his family, his followers. And whenever one accepts Jesus Christ and becomes therefore a child of God, they are taken out of the devil's kingdom. They are transformed forever into the kingdom of God's Son. One of the ways that the devil has fought against this truth is by spreading the falsehood that all members of the human race are children of, of God. Yet this doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, while it's become widespread, is really quite new. Scripture is clear that while God is the creator of everything, including the creator of all people, not all people are adopted as his children, but only those who listen to and follow his son Jesus as Savior and Lord. In John 8, speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus says this, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he, the devil, is a liar and the father of lies. Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reasons you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Not all people are children of God, even though they are all creations made by God. But by His grace, God has chosen to take us as Christians out of the devil's family. He has given us authority and power. He has given us the right and permission to live as His children and His heirs, as we just read. It's no wonder that the devil hates this doctrine. It's no wonder he wants to destroy it by watering it down 
claiming that every monster and sinner from Cain to the final Antichrist are equally children of God. But that is not what Scripture teaches. The Word of God is plain that there are two families and two fatherhoods in this world, and we, all of us, were once part of the family of Satan. But we are now declared to be the sons of the living God through the salvation found in Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. We have been made alive who were once dead in sin. We who were once children of darkness are now children of light. We who were once children of wrath are now children of obedience and divine affection, objects of his love. We are, in short, children of God. All of those references I just made are from passages in the New Testament. And speaking through the Apostle John, God tells us that this relationship and all that it involves is not something that is just in the far future. We don't become the children of God when we arrive in heaven. It is something that is given for us now, in this place. 1 John, the first epistle of John, the third chapter says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been known. Now, our place as the sons and daughters of God guarantees us certain rights from God. We all naturally understand that a father has certain obligations to care for his children. Because human beings fail in that so often, we have laws about that. That fathers are responsible to help care for their children. And our God has also expressed the divine principle that he desires to care for his children. God set forth the rule in 2 Corinthians that children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. Parents should care for the needs of their children, in other words. And if that's true on a human level, then it's also true that the Heavenly Father will provide for His children. Jesus pointed out that the Lord God takes care of the grass of the field and the birds of the air, and that not one sparrow would fall without the knowledge of God the Father. And in the same way, we are assured that God will provide for His children. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, or the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Since God is my Father and I am His Son, He has promised to supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Sonship is ours right now. It is mine right now. It is one of the great reasons that I have for trying to live a life of holiness in obedience to the Father. Because being a son or daughter of God does include some responsibilities. In medieval times, during the age of chivalry, there was a concept which in French was called the noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige simply means nobility obligates. That those who are especially blessed then have an obligation to act nobly, to act generously and kindly toward others who do not have so many blessings. 
If medieval lords thought that their position of being aristocrats placed on them more obligations of nobility, how much more should we realize that our more than noble birth, the fact that we are adopted as children of the great king, our divine birth in him, how much more should that bring with it an obligation for a high and holy walk with God? It's on those grounds that Paul, the apostle, pleads over and over again that believers should walk worthy of the calling wherewith they are called, that we should walk worthy of the Lord and to blessing. It is this high calling that causes us to be asked to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But this isn't complicated. The idea of noble obligation is not complicated because if we are God's children... We should simply seek to imitate Him. We should wish to be like God so that the world might recognize that we are His and see Him in us. There's a phrase that I'm sure you've heard and you may even use it. When referring to a child, it's not uncommon to say, well, he is the spitting image of his father. You've heard that? Well, you may not know that to say a child is the spitting image of his father or mother is actually a degradation of the original saying. Originally, the saying was that a child is the very image, I'm sorry, the very spirit and image of his father. Spit and image is what it devolved to. But the original saying is a person is the very spirit and image of his father. That's what we're supposed to be from our heavenly father, that his very spirit and his image should be reflected in us so that people can see it. Awareness of our divine relationship with God should inspire in us feelings of love and confidence and obedience that other people can see. We should delight to do His will, just as the Lord Jesus delighted in doing the will of the Father and could be seen in Jesus. So is God my Father? If He is, then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other other creation should be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. That's my relationship with God. Is God my Father? Then He is ready to forgive me. Is God my Father? Then the angels of the Lord encamp round me, and I am kept by the power of God through faith until the completion of my salvation in heaven. Is God my Father? Then He will teach me the lessons I need to learn, and He will discipline me so that I am prepared and educated for heaven. There may be lessons in my life that are hard for my flesh and blood to learn, but the Holy Spirit will patiently and tenderly endure to teach them to me and to you. And when necessary, God will not spare the rod and in doing so spoil His child. Hebrews says, For whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. We are made better often by our suffering. It is a way for God to protect us and prepare us for heaven. And while we're being trained and fitted for heaven, for the position He intends us to occupy, nothing will interfere with His purpose in Christ pertaining us. He is daily conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus. Like His other Son, we as His sons and daughters can be more like Him. This is God's eternal purpose, and the time will come when we will stand before Him and see Him and be like Him. As the sons and daughters of God, we belong to a noble company, quite literally a royal family, the children of the one great king. If the eternal, eternally chosen family of those who have been redeemed out of this world by the blood of our Savior, 
We are brought into the family of God through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And one of the marks of our sonship is that we recognize other members of our family. In the midst of a world that is largely composed of children of wrath and children of disobedience, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. When we say we have family at Lakeside, we mean it quite literally. You are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have been adopted by God and are His children, and we are family. And the nearer we grow to Christ, the more we wish to have fellowship with our family members, with all those who truly believe in Him. I am a son of God. You are a daughter of God, in the singular. But together we are the sons and daughters that are the family of God, in plural. We were not meant to live isolated lives. There is nothing in Scripture that advocates solitary Christianity. Only if you were abandoned on a deserted island would God miraculously give you all you need. You are intended to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters. Like must uh, seek like. We must find ourselves drawn to others who love the Lord and who wish to honor Him. Our attitude must be, we are going to be together in heaven forever because of the grace of God and our faith in that grace made possible to us by our Savior and Lord. And if we're going to be together in heaven forever, then should we not be together here on earth? We have too much of a habit as human beings to love things and use people instead of loving people and using things. But it has been very wisely said that no thing that you have ever owned or seen or used will last. It will all be destroyed. The old earth will pass away. But no person you have ever met will ever truly die. Every human being will live forever. And if we really got that, that things go away but people will always remain, would that not change our attitudes toward what is valuable to us? So this is what it means to be a son or daughter of God. It defines our relationship with God. It defines who we are. It makes clear how we should live. It defines our relationship with other Christian brothers and sisters, and it assures us of God's eternal favor to us as His children. This blessing to be adopted into God's own family is one of the most important and exciting aspects of the great adventure of the Christian life, and it is one we truly should celebrate. My brothers and sisters, my family members, we are blessed as God's children, and we need to own that and celebrate it. Amen.